This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. I am delighted today to be joined by Rabbi Joshua Davidson, a graduate of Princeton University, and like my wife, the rabbi, HUC, Rabbi Davidson is the senior rabbi of Congregation Emmanuel of New York City. Prior to joining Congregation Emmanuel, Rabbi Davidson served as a senior rabbi of Temple Bethel in Chappaqua, and he has been deeply involved in a whole variety of interfaith and social justice issues and organizations. Rabbi Davidson, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Thank you so much, Mark. I'm honored to be with you, particularly knowing your work in the arena of social justice. It's a great honor for me. So thank you. Oh, well, thank you. So you have chosen really two extraordinary passages, some of the seminal passages of the Torah and how they relate together. So why don't you um, tell us what happened in each of these passages and how they relate and why it's significant to you? So I've chosen... uh, Two passages, both from the same weekly parasha, Vayera. The first is uh, Genesis 18, Abraham arguing to save the righteous of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the second passage I chose is Genesis 22, where Abraham does not argue at all to save the life of his own son. Right. So, yeah. So what happens in the first of the passages, which is uh, 1820? In Genesis uh, 18, God determines that uh, the sins of the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah are so severe that the citizens must be wiped out. And very much in the style that God chooses to wipe out the inhabitants of earth uh, before the flood, here too, God decides enough is enough. They ought to be destroyed. Not with water this time, ultimately it's with fire. But God realizes that it would be inappropriate simply to do this without consulting Abraham because God has commissioned Abraham as his prophet. And even though Abraham is a junior partner in the project of teaching humanity, Abraham's still a partner. I think that is such an important and correct description. Abraham is his partner. And that you see that in 1817, and Hashem said, shall I conceal from Abraham what I do? This is the language of one partner to another. It's not of an all-powerful deity to a, a meaningless person. These, this is the language of two partners. If you choose someone to be your partner in the project of teaching humanity the right way, You can't simply ignore that you've brought that person into the effort. And so God says to Abraham, this is what I'm planning on doing. And Abraham, frankly, is aghast. He says, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? I mean, this is the greatest act of chutzpah in human history. Abraham says, I who am but dust and ashes, I'm going to insist that you don't wipe out these cities if there are righteous people there. And and we know how the argument goes. So it is the greatest act of chutzpah and moral audacity in human history. But do you think God articulates how much he welcomes it when he says, shall I conceal from Abraham what I'm going to do? In other words, as you said, saying to Abraham, you are my partner, my junior partner, but you're my partner, therefore giving Abraham the invitation to do what a good partner does, which is to question, sometimes critically, the future, in this case, imminently future actions of the senior partner. I think God loves the argument and welcomes it with that. I agree. And I I think we can say this is the case because we see it again when 
God is ready to wipe out the Israelites after frustration, bringing them out of Egypt and their constant backsliding into faithlessness. God even says to Moses, hold me back, hold me back. I'm going to wipe these Israelites out. And Moses says, no, 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 you can't do that. You chose them. They're yours. You got to stick with them. Well, I think we're seeing the same thing here with Abraham. And, and God wants Abraham to stick out his neck. And to argue with him and to question him. And so I think you see four arguments with God in the Torah. You see Abraham and God in Sodom. You see Abraham, you see Moses and God at the golden calf. You see the daughters of Zalopakad and God when it comes to inheriting the land. And then you see those, the men at Pesach Shani who say, we want to celebrate Pesach, even though we're in a state of impurity. And the people win every single time. So God loves it. God he lovingly loses these arguments and in some cases gives the people more than what they want. Yeah, we see this play through the rabbinic tradition too, where ultimately the rabbis will deliver an argument and God will give in to them because God knows that ultimately the people have to, to run, their own, uh, run their own planet, run their own operation. So I think that's what's happening here. And so we know what happens. I mean, Abraham starts by saying, well, if there are 50 righteous people there, Will you spare the cities? And God says, yes, if they're 50 righteous, I'll spare the city. And Abraham argues God all the way down to 10. He seems surprised that he's winning because he gets more and more solicitous as it goes from 40 to 30 to 20 to 10. But he gets him down to 10. I think Abraham is somewhat emboldened during the course of the argument. He sees that God's willing to give in and, uh, and he keeps arguing God all the way down to 10. And it's uh, extraordinary. And then at the end of the passage, it says, and Abraham returned to his makom. He returned to his place. In other words, Abraham is willing to step out of his accustomed place as the junior partner in order to assert his belief in justice. A very interesting interpretation. So when you say he returned to his place, that means he was not in his place when he was arguing with God. He was in a different place as God's co-partner, equal arguer. Then he returned to his place as the junior partner. Yeah. I mean, Dr. King said the measure of a person is not where one stands in moments of comfort, but where one stands in moments of challenge. And Abraham is willing to step out of that comfortable place and to argue with God where he perceives an injustice. So why does God depart at 10? He does not give Abraham the opportunity to argue him down to one. I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, it's one of the great questions. I think, I think one way to read this is that Abraham is teaching God the importance of the individual. Because Abraham refers to, will you destroy the city because of the five? God gets to 45. And God's teaching Abraham the importance of politics. In other words, what God's saying is there has to be a critical mass of goodness or we won't have anything to work with. And it's 10. They settle on 10, which interestingly is the number of people in Abraham's family through Lot that are in Sodom. If you count Lot, and his kids and his in-laws, it's, it's 10. So in other words, if Lot's a good man and Lot can make his family good, the city is saved. I think that's a really wonderful read on it. And it actually fits very well with what I want to talk about in Genesis 22. So Abraham wins this argument. He gets God from 50 to 10. And so they have a new deal. The deal is if there are 10 righteous people in Sodom. Interestingly, Gomorrah has disappeared from this conversation. So it starts with Sodom and Gomorrah, but the entire argument focuses on Sodom, leading to the question, what happened to Gomorrah? The text is silent, but we're at Sodom. And so the deal is, if there can be 10 righteous people, then God is saying, I won't destroy the city. But are there 10 righteous people? My favorite read on this is from Nechama Leibovich, who says, of course there were 10 righteous people. Of course there were. 
The problem was that the 10 righteous people and the many more like them had no concern about what was going on and the text repeats that phrase again and again. They had no concern about what was going on within the city. And because they had no concern for the actions within their own city, they were considered as if they were guilty and they were swept away along with the rest of the guilty. There's an extraordinary passage in the rabbinic writings, and I don't remember the source. I've tried to find it. It speaks of a man who steps outside the door of his home, and he looks around to the right and to the left, and he sees all of the terrible things that are happening within his city, the hunger, the homelessness, the crime. And he says to himself, what does any of this have to do with me? And he goes back into his house, closes the door. And the rabbis say of this man, God says to him, let him be damned. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah is our admonishment against this sense that what's happening within our city, within our country, doesn't have anything to do with us. That's fascinating. That, that totally explains, and I never thought of it until now, that later passage in Deuteronomy, when the leader of the city, when there's the, basically the homeless guy dies and no one knows who he is, and yet the leaders of the city, they have to identify which city he's closest to, which apparently is a measuring challenge because they got to get it precisely right. And then the leader of the city, even though he doesn't know who the man is, has to repent because he has to repent for the sin of not knowing who this man is, of letting a man be a total stranger in his city. That's a sin worthy of repentance, even though the text is clear, he didn't have anything to do with, with the killing. Right. We are responsible. So Nahum Leibowitz is saying that there are righteous people. Of course there are, but they're privately righteous. They're not publicly righteous. They have no interest in social justice. They just have interest in, I'm doing my thing. I'm a fundamentally good guy. I'm doing my thing. Whatever happens there is not my responsibility. And God damns them. Precisely. Okay, so then we go from Genesis 19, which is, there are not 10 righteous people. The city gets destroyed, of course, to the greatest story ever told, the Akedah. So what happens there? Genesis 22. So just to draw the contrast, right? In the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham is willing to stick his neck out. He's willing to step out of his makom, his accustomed place, to save people he doesn't know. But in Genesis 22, the story of the Kedah, God tells him, take your son up to the top of this mountain and slaughter him. And Abraham is silent. He just follows the command. And you know the difference in his behaviors in the two passages is extraordinary. So just to sort of refresh our, our memories, um, God calls to Abraham and says, take your, your most beloved son, Isaac. And let's not forget, Abraham's been waiting for Isaac for years. Sarah finally gives birth to him. And now this most precious child, God says to Abraham, take him up to this mountain and you're going to offer him up to me. And Abraham doesn't. In fact, not only does he do it, he gets up early the morning after the instruction to do it. He's eager to do it. And the traditional understanding is that Abraham is eager to follow God's command, to show his faith. So he takes Isaac up the uh, mountain, and he's got the knife raised over him, and he's ready to lower it into Isaac when finally God's voice through angels says, stop, don't do it. Now I know you were that you wouldn't withhold your beloved son from me. I know your faith. You don't have to do anything and don't touch him. It's extraordinary. And you have these two calls, the one at the start of the, the tale, which says, 
take him up and offer him. And then the second call at the end, which says, you know, don't offer him at all. And no passage in the Bible has been studied more than this one. It confronts us every Rosh Hashanah. It's so we can never forget it. It's a terrifying passage, but I think it teaches us quite a bit. First, I think if you hold the two passages together, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah on the one hand and the story of the Akedah on the other, not only does it show us the difference in Abraham's behavior in the two, it also reminds us of something that we sometimes witness in public figures. There are um, public leaders who are willing to stick their necks out bravely for broader causes of social justice. But sometimes when we come to learn about them, we see that their own personal lives are not quite so um, so happy. And so your comment about the 10 being the size of Abraham's family is a reminder that you got to take care of your own family too. And Abraham doesn't do that. He's willing to sacrifice his family in private, even though in public, he's willing to stand up for the cause of justice. And And sometimes public figures their public leadership isn't always mirrored in how they conduct their own private lives. And uh, so there's a reminder, I think, for all of us in that. It's a fascinating insight. It would really explain what Rabbi Ari Berman said on The Rabbi's Husband when when he talked about this passage, where he said there are three Hinanis. Abraham says Hinani first to God, second to Isaac, and then third to the angel who says you don't have to kill him. And the angel at the end says, Abraham, Abraham. So Ari asked, why did he say Abraham twice? It's like Abraham's not listening or he has something better to do, you know. Why not just Abraham? Why Abraham twice? And he said he was addressing Abraham of the first Hineni, Abraham, the child of God, and Abraham of the second Hineni, Abraham as the father of Isaac, and saying, you can always be present for both God and your son. Fascinating insight is that Abraham initially, as as you said, was conflicted. He wasn't willing to be present for his son, but he was present for God. And the lesson from the angel, derivative of God, of course, is you, Abraham, and thus all of us can be present for both. There'll never be this conflict. Was it Israel Salanter who said, you want to make peace in the world, start with your community. You want to make peace with your community, start with your home. You want to make peace in your home, start with yourself. We ground our, our leadership in our relationships with, with those closest to us. And Abraham is a fascinating figure in this way. But do you forgive him for not arguing with God? Or do you think he should have, arguably, it would have been easier to take it to God this time because the first time it worked. He, he had the audacity the first time, he doesn't the second time. Should Abraham have argued with God and said, God, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to sacrifice my beloved Isaac. And then given a more principled argument as to why he's not going to do it. But should he have given some kind of argument in a way that Abraham, of course, had the intellectual capacity to do rather than just comply? You know, look, there, there are all kinds of great interpretations for this. I actually want to share a couple of them with you. But um, one of my favorites, when Abraham lets the, the servants go, because the servants have accompanied him partway along the journey, and then he says to them, um, now you stay and, and the boy and I are going to go up and then we'll come back to you. So either he's telling the servants, we're going to come back to you so the servants don't get suspicious and think maybe he in fact is going to slaughter Isaac. Or he's saying we're going to come back to you because he believes that he actually will. But he says to them, we're going to go and we're going to see. Uh, we're going to go, Adko is translated up yonder. It doesn't really mean that. Ko doesn't doesn't have a defined meaning. But Rashi looks at an earlier passage where God says to uh, Abraham, look up at the stars. 
thus shall your offspring be as numerous as the stars. And so the so Rashi says, when Abraham says to these servants, what he's saying to them is, we're going to go up and we're going to see what's going to become of this promise. Thus shall your offspring be as numerous as the stars. So Abraham may in fact be sort of testing God. He's going to see what ultimately becomes of this promise. But there are two other understandings of the Akeda, which if it's okay, I'd like to just share. Please, yeah, absolutely. First, I think that when you when you frame the story of the Akedah in its historical context, you can understand it a little bit better. And here's what I mean by that. I think the writers of the Bible placed it in the Torah as a polemic against child sacrifice, right? So this was something endemic to the time in which Abraham would have been living. And we know that because I think it's in Leviticus, it says, you cannot have your child walk through the fire. And there are other passages in the prophets too. Right. It must have been common or else it wouldn't have been prohibited. Like you wouldn't give a sermon now and saying, whatever you do, parents, don't have your child walk through the fire because it's not a, a concern of Emmanuel congregants. But if it's in the Bible over and over again, it must have been prevalent. So oftentimes when things are prevalent, the Bible has a particular way of responding. It says, thou shalt not, right? Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. We can assume that those things were happening back then just as they sadly happen today. But the writers of the Bible, instead of just putting it into, you know, one of that, uh, one of those commandment forms, thou shalt not, the writers of the Bible decide they are going to elevate this in a different way. And they, they run the scene. They roll the tape right up to the moment where the knife is raised over Isaac. And then they draw that big red circle around the frame with a big X in front of it. And that is the way the writers of the Bible want to say, this you don't do. It's more, much more powerful than simply saying, thou shalt not sacrifice your child. And so we, we see, you know, even in these patriarchal narratives, that the Bible is teaching us that the, the mores of a particular age are not necessarily, and in fact, certainly not, the way the, the Israelite people, the Hebrew people, is to live. The Bible has always been countercultural, and here this passage is meant to tell us that. So I think that's a real important way to understand it. And of course, you know, that way of reading it is read across the, uh, the centuries. Gunther Plout, you know, one of the great um, rabbis and commentators of our age says, too, that humanity will often project its basest instincts onto a deity in order to validate them. But then it's not God that's cruel. It's humanity that's cruel. Right. I mean, the Bible says to us, you are created in God's image, not God's created in your image. Correct. But we often do the reverse. Absolutely. That's perhaps the most prevalent theological problem that is faced today and in the past and presumably in the future. We project onto God what we believe to be right and what we believe to be wrong. And in the best cases, that offers a, a transcendent authority to uh, moral values, which we need. Most of us don't want to live in an age where moral relativism rules the day. We want to believe that there are certain rights and certain wrongs. And so we, we ascribe those to God, and that's important. But the flip side of that is that there are fundamentalists who use 
religious tradition to commit heinous crimes. They're creating God in their image, not the other way around, which exactly. Now, um, Rabbi Riskin says, I think he's calling this Fadimet, but Rabbi Riskin says, this whole thing is a big misunderstanding. He said, God never wanted Abraham to sacrifice his son. He said, God tells Abraham only go up to the mountain with your son to perform a sacrifice. And in Rabbi Riskin's imagination, and I think he's doing this Fadimet, it's, you could just imagine God being like, oh my God, what is he doing? Like, this is never what I intended. So that the whole, if that's the case, this whole thing, and that's just one interpretation, but if that's the case, the whole thing is one big misunderstanding teaching us that Abraham's sin perhaps was not arguing. It was certainly not clarifying. Hey God, just to be sure, like you want me to take Isaac, who is going to carry on everything that we both believe in, and you want me to kill him? But, you know, Abraham never argues or clarifies. What do you think of Rabbi Riskin's interpretation? Well, yeah, it's rooted in the, in the multiple understandings of the term ha'alehu. It could either mean bring him up, literally bring him up to the top of the mountain, or it could mean offer him up as a sacrifice. Oh, the word could mean either? Yeah. In 22.2. Okay. So it could mean bring him up or offer him. And in that, how do you read it in the Hebrew? How do you read it? I mean, how should it be read? All, I see in the art scroll, it says bring, but you said it could be bring or offer. Well, again, it, I read it in the light of modern biblical criticism, which is a polemic against child sacrifice. So I think the text means it to say, offer him up. And then when the scene is stopped, that's the, the signal that, no, we don't do this. So I think it's meant to be offer him up. You know, it reminds me of all of those great cell phone commercials, Can You Hear Me Now? Yeah, so this idea that there was a bad connection, it's a great read on it. In the Hebrew, is it ambiguous? Because if it's ambiguous, maybe one of, the, one of the great things about the Bible is how we can learn multiple lessons from the same passage. So maybe it's simultaneously teaching us about child sacrifice, about arguing with God, and about the importance of clarifying things. Because if it could be read either way, then we're given the gift of multiple lessons through multiple interpretations. At the end of the passage, when God says, now I know that you wouldn't withhold your, your beloved child from me, that would seem to be pretty clear that God was commanding him to sacrifice him. So if you, if you read it in the context of the entire chapter, I think that the Hale who was meant... That God was saying, offer him, not bring him. Yeah. But the word's the same, right? Uh, I mean, lift up, bring up, cause to ascend. So if you're going to burn a sacrifice, you, you're causing it to ascend the smoke up to the heavens. Now, Alan Dershowitz said on, on the rabbi's husband, because he, 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 he also addressed the question, why doesn't Abraham argue? Which is a very important question for Alan, who so believes in the lessons and the teachings of Jewish argumentation. Alan said, Abraham had already won the argument at Sodom that God would not destroy the righteous. Interestingly, at Sodom, Abraham makes no argument for the wicked because the idea of repentance had not yet been invented. He only makes an argument for the righteous, but that wasn't Alan's point. Alan's point is, he didn't speak of this with certitude, but he said, perhaps Abraham had already won the argument. So come the Akedah, Abraham knows he's not going to have to sacrifice him. And that's why he said what you just said, which is he told the, the other people will be back. So Abraham doesn't need to argue because he already won the argument. That's what Alan posited. I wouldn't refute that, except that, you know, I think that there are other places where Abraham ignores the well-being of his own family, right? He's willing to have uh, Sarah, you know, taken into the harem of first the Pharaoh and then of the king of the Philistines. I'm too intrigued by these dual uh, elements of Abraham's personality, the public courageous figure and the private, uh, you know, mess. What a fascinating contrast you point out. Absolutely. The private mess and the 
public hero and the complicated father we have. And, and it's not, you know, of course, it's not just Abraham, right? I mean, we say see the same thing with with Isaac and the problems he has at home. Moses has this terrible divorce. Moses has it. Jacob will sacrifice just about anything in order to save the project of keeping the Israelites as a people alive. Never mind what happens to his daughter or to the strife he causes within his own home through the favoritism of Joseph and Benjamin over the others. Our public figures and our patriarchs, these are not perfect people. And uh, we learn from them both the courage on the one hand and sometimes from their failings on the other. Yeah, I don't know who it was. I looked it up, but I can't find it. I don't know who it is. Some wit said in reference to how all of our heroes in the Bible have such massively massive flaws that the Bible was either written by God or an anti-Semite because no people would write their own history this way. (laughs) Well, it's why the Bible not only speaks to us in a corporate sense as a people, but it also speaks to us in a very personal, individual sense because we all have these same challenges. I mean, we all have struggles with our own personal relationships. We all sometimes forget to prioritize what's what's most important. And that, what's, that's what, of course, makes the Bible so relatable to us, uh, not just as a history book, but as a, as a guide for how we conduct our own personal lives, too. And that's exactly what the Bible is. It's a guidebook. It's not a history book. It's not a law book. It's not a cookbook. It's a guidebook. Well, it's a cookbook in terms, if you, you know, have you ever tried, um, you know, Jacob's stew? I think Cholent is an anti-Semitic plot, so I, I try to avoid all such things. <laughs> Jacob's stew was probably the first. Well, Rabbi Davidson, thank you for such a fascinating conversation about the juxtaposition of these two awesome passages and just showing both their depth and their relevance to our present struggles, challenges, and opportunities. Now, the concluding question of the rabbi's husband always goes from one text, this uh, sacred text of the Bible, to another text, which is Andre Malroux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And he tells a story in the book. He said, I just ran into a man with whom I served in the war. And he said, this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, one, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So in all of your years as a congregational rabbi, and we can add to that your father's 40 years as a congregational rabbi. So you and your father have had almost a century of congregational rabbinate. What are two things that you've learned about humankind? I've learned that the people will always try to do the right thing, that um, inherently we want to um, reach outside ourselves in order to um, make the world around us better. We don't always know the best way to do that. And sometimes our uh, baser instincts get the better of us. But if we're reminded, if we're provided a model, Bible, I think in so many ways, is that compass for us, we'll always try to do better. The second thing I think I've learned about people is the power of resilience. I mean, I have seen in my rabbinate, as any congregational rabbi has seen, people suffer the tragedies of the worst nature. And then they somehow manage to reach inside themselves and they find a strength that they didn't realize was there. How does that happen? How do they find the strength they didn't realize was there? Is, it, is there something about the crisis that allows them to, or is it the counseling they get from you? Or, I mean, what an incredible insight. So how do people do it? No, it's got nothing to do with me. It's got nothing to do with, I think, any rabbi. 
it just has to do with human nature and the power of wanting to keep going. And people are able just to dig down and they find it. I mean, I, I believe that ultimately God is the source of that strength. But how do they do it? They do it because they got no other choice. They don't know that they've got that strength until they find themselves in that position. Is that the same dynamic? I remember years ago, one of my first trips to Israel, I asked uh, an older man, he became a friend. He was a veteran of the 48 war. And, and I said, how did you win? He said, because we had nowhere else to go. Yeah, you have nowhere else to go. You know, a mother loses her husband. She's got two young children. What else is she going to do? You have to keep going. And you dig down and you you find it. Now, look, you find strength in the people around you. Maybe your, your rabbi opens you up to... Um, the power of, of belief and the power of faith, or your, your therapist reminds you, you've been through difficult moments before, and, um, and you can get through this one too. But ultimately, it comes from within and it comes from above. And uh, I just see it, and I, it takes my breath away to behold it. Beautiful. It reminds me of what Eli Wiesel said when he says, the secret of the Bible is not that you can begin, but that you can begin again. Yeah, that you can begin again. Well, Rabbi, thank you for such a fascinating conversation about so many subjects emanating from uh, these awesome passages in in Genesis. It's my pleasure. I I really enjoyed talking to you about it, and I thank you for the opportunity. Oh, thank you. If you're enjoying this episode, I hope that you'll sign up for the Rabbi's Husband newsletter which includes book giveaways from our podcast guests, my weekly column on Christian Broadcasting Network, inspiring updates from United Hatsawa and African Mission Healthcare, and a behind-the-scenes look at my upcoming book published by St. Martin's Essentials, The Telling, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life. You can sign up at therabbishusband.com or feel free to email daniel at therabbishusband.com.